0: Now today I would like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke's gospel in the first chapter and I'd like to read from uh, verses 39 to 56 and uh, this is the passage in which Mary goes into the hill country after having been uh, received the announcement from Gabriel that she's going to bear the son of God and so Mary goes to see Elizabeth who's now six months pregnant with John the Baptist. I want to pick this story up with you in verse 39. It says, in those days, the days immediately following Gabriel's announcement to Mary, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to see me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months. That would be until John was born and then returned to her home I'm going to ask you to join with me in prayer our Father in heaven I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight and teach us what you'd have us to learn from this passage and strengthen us in our conviction that these are your very words through Christ our Lord I pray amen Well, today I'm going to let you in on a little uh, secret, as it were, which is simply this, that in each of the Advent sermons that I'm preaching this year, I'm developing an idea, a motif, an idea, theologically and apologetically. And that idea is simply this, that the good news about Jesus is too wonderful not to be true. It's not too good to be true. It's too wonderful not to be true. But back in 1954, it was the Better Business Bureau that first issued a warning to the public about salesmen's misleading promises, and it was in one of their, one of their uh, publications that they wrote, if something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. And I agree, it usually is. But the gospel, though no, uh, though good Christians often distort it in order to make it sound like a sales pitch, the gospel is not a sales pitch. The gospel is not you buy this from me and then this is what you will get in return. That is not what the gospel is. The gospel is this is what God has already done for you in Christ. He has sent His Son to offer an atoning sacrifice for your sins. He sent His Son Jesus to be your Savior and His saving work is done, it is complete salvation is complete in Him. Your deepest need to know, to be known, to be loved, to be accepted, to have significance, to have worth, your deepest need has been met and now it's for you to accept or to reject. But be warned because we're talking about Almighty God here And the risk of loss does not come in accepting this amazing and wonderful gift of his son. The risk comes in rejecting him. In fact, even if you're not a Christian, at the very least you will know this, that in rejecting him, your deepest need still remains. And there's nothing in the whole world that can meet it. There is nothing like the message and the truth of Jesus Christ. I say to you this morning, it's too good not to be true. It's not a sales pitch. It's not distorted claims. The gospel is a declaration of what God has done. And the accounts that we have in the scriptures, the gospels, in other passages, in the prophets, these accounts are The evidence. These accounts are what God uses to convict and to persuade and draw people into a living relationship with himself. No, it's not too good to be true. And when we spend time working with that evidence, which I speak of in these scriptures, this is the evidence. When we spend time handling this evidence, we we come to see this about it. We come come to love it. It really is compelling evidence. And I'm not merely saying that the scriptures are believable. I am saying that there is a compelling goodness that we find in these scriptures that we find nowhere else. And I'm saying that this compelling goodness is of God. That certainly is the case with the story we have this morning, I think, of Mary's visit to Elizabeth, their conversation together, Mary's praise and response to Elizabeth's confirmation. Confirmation of Gabriel's promise. I'm referring to this, that in verse 43, Mary hears, for the very first time, Elizabeth tells her, Mary hears, for the very first time, this word used of her. Elizabeth calls her a mother. And the son she bears is the Lord. She says to Mary, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And I have to say that one of the reasons I do believe this story is true, that it happened just like it says, is because of its its goodness. And by goodness, I mean purity and humility, and not just purity or humility on Mary's part, but, but on Elizabeth's part. I mean, you notice here there's no jealousy in Elizabeth, no sense that she's been upstaged. I mean, here she is with this... Miraculous pregnancy herself in her advanced age with her history of infertility. It is a miracle that she herself is carrying this son. And yet now she has no hesitation to honor, to honor Mary for her new status. A status that Elizabeth herself could never achieve. And over those three months that followed, Elizabeth and Mary spend time together. They enjoy fellowship shaped by the presence of Christ. And this was a a dear time, a spiritual preparation and encouragement that both these women needed. And the truth was that Mary was the only person in the world who could give that to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was the only person in the world who could give that to Mary because they alone knew and understood what was happening. I talk about goodness being expressed as Purity and humility. It's even seen in the unborn John, because when Mary enters with Jesus, and John's mother is enraptured, this this sets off no struggle for dominance within the womb, as you saw in the Old Testament Jacob. And he saw that little boy inside of Elizabeth didn't start kicking and protesting, "Mom, don't forget about me." It was really quite the opposite. When Elizabeth says the baby leaped in my womb for joy, she's using that term, the same term for skipping. Like baby calves skip. Little animals skip. She says this is what John was doing in me. I mean, the truth is that it was John who rejoiced first. That's what prompted Elizabeth to forego what would have been the elaborate rituals of mutual greeting when one entered another, another's home in the oriental setting. All that was skipped, went right, right to the bone, right to the great news, right to the joy. And then of course there's Mary, dear Mary. Betrothed, not married, but pregnant. And at this point, in all likelihood, having not told Joseph, this was ahead of her, this conversation. I mean, the passage starts out in verse 39. Luke tells us that it was after, just after, that the angel appeared to her that she arose and went with haste to see Elizabeth. And then it tells us at the end, in verse 56, that at the end she returned to her home, her home. She was not married yet. She in all likelihood had not even spoken with Joseph yet to confirm what the angel had said to her. She had gone to see Elizabeth because the angel had told her about Elizabeth. So here in this particular transitional stage, if you could call it, of life, you have Mary in what could have been just an absolutely nerve-wracking position, You could have her full of protest and wrapped up in herself and looking at this as a terrible dilemma and blaming God and dreading the future and frightened and asking God, give this privilege to someone else. But she's not doing, she's not doing any of that. She's, She's letting what God has said shape her mind and her heart even as her body begins to be shaped by the word of God to enfold his son. And she responds with faith and hope and love. We talk about faith, hope, and love all the time. It's really quite a, quite a simple phrase to say. I think sometimes we make actually light of it. I mean, she responded out of the deepest faith in the most genuine and convinced hope. And with the... With Completely unrestrained, uncautioned love. When Elizabeth says to her, Blessed are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, in verse 42, Mary receives that. She receives that. Yes. When Elizabeth goes on to tell her in verse 45, and blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord, she embraces that. Virtually any other uh, upstanding teenager at that time, that place in history, would have felt like their, their life was ruined. She embraces this. And this pronouncement of blessing on Mary By Elizabeth is what prompts Mary to praise God with all of her heart. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked at the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. From that point, her song, which is called the Magnificat, And the Latin word for magnify, my soul magnifies the Lord. From that point, her song really becomes a manifesto, honestly. That all all the impossible, seemingly too good to be true things the prophets had promised would come to pass. And she declares it because she sees that that's exactly what's happening in her life. It's actually what's happening within herself. And so her message turns fierce. It is fiercely good. Her words are a warning to anyone who would presume that God is partial to the great in this world, or that He would favor the proud in this world. Now, the kingdom of God turns all the values of this world on their head. It's a warning to any who'd, who'd think. Because God is, and he truly is, high and mighty, that he ignores the poor and the lonely. Hear the contrast within these verses. I'll give you three examples of what Mary says in this central section or advanced section of the Magnificat. First in verse 50, God has mercy on those who fear him. Verse 52, he has exalted those of low degree. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. But then secondly, look at the three converse statements. Verse 51, he has scattered the proud in their imagination. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. The rich he has sent away empty. And he asks the question, why this fiery rhetoric? This dangerous rhetoric. you know, just before she did this in verses 49 and 50, she declared that God is great and holy and merciful. She said, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. And, folks, these are not... She was not naming these as as characteristics of God as he sort of sits in heaven. There's nothing abstract about what she's saying. Mary is testifying of the power that God exerts in the cause of righteousness and mercy. And she realizes that he has exerted that power on her and in her to the end that the one who is born from her will bring to pass all of the promises of God. She knows in her own experience, God is doing these things in her. And she knows that such mercy is for all who fear him from generation to generation, she says in verse 50. And she knows it because she's carrying the Christ within her. She's carrying the fulfillment of the prophetic promises. So here you have this amazing story in which we find such purity and humility and such faith and hope and love and such adoration and courage and even fierceness. And I say to you about this story that it is flawlessly good that it is too wonderful not to be true. It is for our humanity. It is not of our humanity. It is not the product of human inspiration. I want you to think with me about this as we go through the rest of the message. I'd like to give you a quote, a statement from the website Lit Thinking, literature, literary thinking. This observation is offered. For some reason, we find goodness hard to write. We find goodness hard to read. You think about it. How many characters have you come across in a novel who are full of goodness but still likable? Or how many of your favorite characters have deep flaws whether they realize them or not? It's an interesting phenomena, I think. Stories mean trouble. So writing about something good and lovely and without flaws means no story. That would be like trying to write a story about heaven. There won't be too much action happening. Characters in whom it's hard to see anything bad don't strike us as true. It's hard to believe they're human. The point is well made. It's extremely difficult to write in a believable way about goodness in human beings. It's extremely difficult. Toni Morrison, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist and playwright, the first black woman to win a Nobel Prize for literature for her novel Beloved, has spoken to this very point as to why she writes the way she does. Evil, she says, has a blockbuster audience while goodness lurks backstage. Evil has a top hat and dresses well and even has its own theme music. Goodness is often described as stupid. Good people are often viewed as stupid people. Jerome Bars echoes this in his book, Echoes of Eden. While it is quite easy to write about evil, it is much more difficult to write about goodness and make it seem real. And this is why authors, to write about good, the good or goodness, so often turn to fantasy. The story is about a wonderful lion and a trusting little girl named Lucy. But we know all along it's just a fantasy. It's just a fantasy. But this story we look at this morning has no element of fantasy in it. It has no element of fantasy implied or suggested what is necessary for goodness to be flawlessly presented. The thing that holds it together, that makes it believable, the reason there is integrity of this story is because of the presence of the living God. And without him, it cannot be true. But with him, I submit to you this morning, it cannot be false. It is simply too full of goodness, flawlessly displayed in the most humble of people, in the most humble of circumstances. It is utterly unique, as is the rest of the gospel. And you say to me, wait a minute, Kurt. Couldn't Couldn't someone just make up a story about a truly good God who affects people in really good and wonderful ways, and then pass that story off as true. Couldn't someone just do that? And my answer is no. My answer is no one can just do that. No one is that good. No one can write about goodness without flaws, and no one is that good and also that deceitful at the same time to pass off a lie that they have contrived to show goodness. It doesn't work that way. Life is not like that. Human nature is not like that. and Beyond reality, by which I mean the truth of the matter, Reality has a way of breaking through to expose our deceits. It really does. God is not mocked. What Mary said here is true. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. But perhaps at this point I should be less argumentative. Maybe I should just raise a question or two. If people can just make up stories like this, and then pass them off is true. I would ask a couple of questions about that. One question is, who are those people? Can you name someone for me who's done that? Who's interested in writing that way? Who's interested in reading those stories? Are you familiar with a a publishing house? Can you help me with this? Where are those stories? And you will not find them. God is not mocked. The story of the Blessed Mary visiting Elizabeth is for us. It is for us. But it is not humanly inspired. It is divinely inspired. This story is true. It happened this way. And you see this throughout the gospel. The gospel, entire gospel, what's written of Christ, has this quality of compelling goodness. Goodness. It shows us the truth. You see it especially in the nativity narratives, which we're going through now, but you see it all the way through the gospel. It shows us this amazing truth that God does what he says. That those who believe magnify his name. They magnify him from their souls. And those who so worship in spirit and truth share in the blessings of all that God has done and all that he has promised and this is the truth and this is the truth for you let's pray together father we love you and we thank you for this passage it's so powerful and the example of Mary is so uh, poignant and there's nothing saccharine here It's your word. And I ask you to convince and convict each one of us that it is so. And in our following your word, what you have said, we would do so as Mary did, magnifying you from our souls in worship that is genuine and from our heart and always looking to you in faith, in hope, in love, and fiercely so. In Jesus' name, amen.